Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 134, Golden Child Made King. And it's also episode 4.1, of course, because this is the first episode in a new series, a brand new shiny series, series 4, The House of Lancaster and the Wars of the Roses. This series will take us from 1399 and the accession of Henry IV to the death of of Richard III on Bosworth Field in 1485 and his subsequent internment by Leicester Parking Services. Well ahead of you, gentle listeners, there is a smorgasbord of delights, especially if you like war, battliness, political intrigues and all of that good stuff. I mean, we have, what, four usurpations if you include Henry IV? We start off with one of England's most effective warriors and kings, Henry V, and proceed to possibly its least effective warriors and kings in Henry VI. There are more battles than you can wish for. Agincourt, not to mention Formigny and Castillon. I said not to mention Formigny and Castillon. Who wrote this script? The Wars of the Roses start at episode 4.31 or 163, and you can revel in all that battliness. Tewkesbury, Towton, Bosworth and more. There is factional politics that would make Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn stand in slack-jawed admiration. The characters that would grace any stage. The statesmanlike Duke of Bedford who guides England through the dangerous regency of Henry VI. The kingmaker of the Wars of the Roses, Warwick. 
the she-wolf of France and gritty, relentless fighter Margaret of Anjou, the tragic queen of York, Elizabeth Woodville, the ultimate matriarchs, Cecily of York and Margaret Beaufort. And it is with Margaret Beaufort that we end as she guides her son and England to the safer haven of the Tudor dynasty. In the background, there is fascinating social history as well. The Black Death wrought deep changes in English society and the rural world started to change. The medieval town began to flourish despite a stable and even stagnant population. For those that had survived the horror of the Black Death, the world that followed was relatively affluent. I have a bit of a crack at late medieval society in episodes 178 to 182, while in four episodes, 147 to 149 and 153, I have a go at women's lives in the Middle Ages. One of them, which shall remain nameless, still has me waking up screaming to this day. There is also, incidentally, the smell of early reformation in English lollardy. I say smell because Henry V burns it in episode 4.9. OK, that's it then. So, we have had a good hack at the history of Europe over the last few weeks. Hopefully now we have an holistic view of the political world that Henry would have to deal with over the 13 years of his reign. Today, we're going to go back to the knitting, to the history of England, not all this messing around with those strange folk on the remote continent they call Europe land. We like, don't we, to start off a new reign with a bit of a look at the historiography of the main protagonist, which for some time yet will continue to be the monarch. Just the way it is, I'm afraid, for all you Republicans out there. So, we'll spend half of today's episode on that, and the remaining three quarters on how Henry gets his feet under the royal table. Of course, we must start with our touchstones of historical veracity and scholarship, 1066 and all that, and the Ladybird Kings and Queens of England. Now I have to say that Seller and Yeatman have rather sold me a dummy this time, on Henry IV. Firstly, it's one of the shortest entries in the book, which in itself is interesting. And anyone who can interpret this line, let me know. He had also captured the Scottish Prince James and, while keeping him as a sausage, had him carefully educated for 19 years. Ke? Keeping him as a sausage? Do tell. Answers on a postcard. The Ladybird entry is a classic of its kind, both in its brutal dismissal of Henry and some fascinating contemporary comment on the time it was written, which is 1968, by the way. Here's a summary of Henry. His reign was a troubled one. One after another, rebellions broke out against him and each was followed by savage executions. All the good that can be said of him is that he encouraged artists and men of letters. Ouch. With Henry dismissed, Ladybird go on to trade guilds. These were really the far-off beginnings of the trade unions of today, except they existed chiefly to see that their members produced honest goods. Oh, hang on, do I suspect some kind of political bias going on here? What is today called demarcation was common. For instance, a man who made bows was not allowed to make arrows. 
I can hear the cry of trade union legislation and Britain in the 70s and 80s as I read it. Maybe Margaret Thatcher distributed copies of the Ladybird Book of the Kings and Queens of England at her first cabinet and instructed her willy to turn to the page on Henry the Fourth. What do you think? Though I have to say, as we'll see, Ladybird would not be the first history book to take on the attitudes and concerns of the day when interpreting the past. Now, while clearly my influence on global historical thinking is just possibly less than I would like, for me, Henry IV is a forgotten king, sandwiched in between a fascinatingly potty loser and, of course, the glories of Henry V. It's a case of Henry the Who. And, of course, since I have always considered Shakespeare to be as dull as ditchwater, a man, by the by, while I'm on the subject, responsible for writing the least funny comedies the world has ever seen, I have managed to avoid being educated about Henry IV through his plays which in England is slightly difficult to avoid. So when I came to studying the lad, he was something of an enigma. Well, blow me down and knock me over with a feather if I didn't find that I'm not alone. Not in the Shakespeare wouldn't know a good gag if it came and bought him a pint in the pub thing, but in finding Henry IV an enigma. And while I hate to continue warbling on about Shakespeare, I know enough from my classmates at Loughborough to know that Henry IV didn't even make it to being the hero of the plays that bear his name just got to be the ultimate insult. Part of the thing is the dissonance between the glorious public character of Henry Bolingbroke, contrasted with the actual events, trials and tribulations of the reign of Henry IV, if you see what I mean. The golden child, forced by events to deal with the grubbiest and knottiest realities of life. Winston Churchill probably reflects the received history and general perception of Henry insofar as he is generally perceived at all. Here are a couple of quotes, firstly from the start of his chapter. All historians concur he was manly, capable and naturally merciful. But the sullen, turbulent march of events frustrated his tolerant inclinations and eventually soured his generous nature. And then from the end of the chapter, a guerdon, by the way, is a reward. I had to look that up. I suspect Winnie was trying to avoid using the word reward too many times in the following sentence. Thus the life and reign of Henry IV exhibit to us another instance of the vanities and ambition and the hard guerdon which rewards its success. He had hardly dared at first to aim at the crown. He had found it less pleasing when possessed. Not only physically but morally, he sank under its weight. Upon his death, a new personality ascended to the throne, not only of England, but very soon almost all Western Christendom. Winnie was, of course, very much at home to Mr. Hyperbole. Indeed, Mr. Hyperbole was a permanent fixture in the guest room, but let me draw your attention to two things. Firstly, that Henry possessed all the necessary aspects of a great king, but was ground down by events. And secondly, the massive temptation to see his reign only in the context of the glory of the man who followed, Henry V. Confusion starts early, with two of the main chroniclers of the reign. In Adam of Usk's view, Henry was a man who reigned powerfully, but in the end came to misery and to squalor. Whereas Thomas Walsingham basically just says, the whole thing's glorious. It's Usk's view that prevailed. Henry tried hard, was worthy of respect, but in the end, he was ground down. In the 1540s, 
Edward Hall and his chronicles basically take the same line. Now in 1563, John Fox wrote what is generally known as his Book of Martyrs. He struck a sour note by taking a much more negative spin on Henry. He had an agenda, though. He focused on Henry's vigorous repression of the Lollards. Henry's reign, he said, was, quote, full of trouble, of blood, of misery. He condemned Henry as, quote, the first of all English kings that began the unmerciful burning of Christ's saints for standing up against the Pope. In general, of course, in 1596, Shakespeare then continues the previous line, a man worthy of respect, but whose actions in usurping the throne brought misery on his country and on himself. And the usurpation continued to dog Henry throughout history, not just in his own time. In 1599, Sir John Hayward wrote a book about the usurpation of Henry IV. His coverage led to an incident that I have to admit may have been wrongly reported and interpreted here in the History of England podcast, Mea Culpa, Mea Maxima Culpa. I think at least one of you has already identified my misinterpretation. Anyway, Hayward's book about Henry's usurpation was badly received by the then ageing Queen Elizabeth, who saw it as a veiled attack on her since it was dedicated to the treasonous Earl of Essex. "'Know ye not that I am Richard the Second? she is supposed to have raged, and the poor chap was interrogated by the Star Chamber and flung into prison for a year. In the 18th century, a different theme begins to emerge. Henry's reign is seen through the veil of Whiggish constitutionalism. In 1762, David Hume focused on the role of Parliament in the usurpation and the impact on its role and authority throughout Henry's reign. Henry Hallam, a little later, made the same point. And then our mate William Stubbs, the grandiose, ever so slightly pompous but massively authoritative Victorian, known to his mates down the boozer as Stubbsy, took it, of course, one step further. By claiming that Henry actually consciously initiated, quote, a great constitutional experiment, a premature testing of the parliamentary system. Despite Stubbs's love of anyone who brought Parliament forward, and his view that in the light of that Henry was a great king, his judgment is actually rather slighting of Henry's talents. He seems to us a man whose life was embittered by the knowledge that he'd taken on a task for which he was unequal, whose conscience, ill-formed as it may have been, had soured him, and who felt that the judgments of men at least would deal hardly with him when he was dead. James Ramsay, at a similar time, follows the Stubbsy line, declaring Henry to be painstaking and industrious, merciful and temperate and domestic, a traveller but not a soldier or a sportsman. The latter part of which judgment infuriates contemporary historian Ian Mortimer with some justice, given Bolingbroke's reputation as a jouster and his success in the battles he fought. But the big seminal study of Henry IV appears to be a massive set of four tomes, published between 1884 and 1898 by James Hamilton Wiley. The result appears to be no clear picture of Henry IV and his character, but the bringing together of a mass of material that later historians have then been able to feed off. One of these, Griffith Davis, introduces a new theme, which is that it's easy to forget that the triumphs of Henry V's reign were very much based on the work of his father. 
that Henry V inherited a tool and a platform that he was then able to use. It also poses the question of how the two would have coped if the positions had been reversed, i.e. if Henry IV had been the son, what would he have done with the opportunity? Griffiths Davies' basic conclusion about Henry IV is very positive, but more on the basis of a man who faced up to his duties to God, family and people. One of the best known and influential historians of the period was K.B. Macfarlane in the middle of the last century. Macfarlane emphasised the importance of understanding the relationship between Bolingbroke and Richard. He pretty much debunked Stubbs's portrait of Henry, focusing on the bunking that Stubbs had indulged in about Henry consciously driving constitutional change. Not so, said Macfarlane. Henry was, quote, not a man of constitutional principle at all, but an opportunist and a politique, which seems fair. Macfarlane, incidentally, is also the chap that took the view that bastard feudalism, slated by the Victorians as evil and a degradation of honest, pure feudalism, was bunk. And he debunked that too. Seems to me, if we got rid of all the original bunking altogether, an awful lot of people would be out of a debunking job. In the 60s, Jacobs took the view that Henry got far too little credit for a darn difficult job in hideous circumstances and backs the Walsingham glorious rain line. G.L. Harris, a student of Macfarlane and author of a seriously good textbook, Shaping of the Nation, first published in 2005, seriously, a textbook but gloriously written, wonderfully clear, concise insights. Harris basically gives a positive summary. He stresses the Bolingbroke, he stresses that Bolingbroke's personal qualities and fitness to rule. He stresses Bolingbroke's personal qualities and fitness to rule. And that while his reign was full of hardship, he survived because of the political groundwork that he had laid in building his relationships with Parliament. Which brings us to Ian Mortimer and The Fears of Henry IV in 2007. Mortimer, as an author, engages and irritates me in equal measure engages through his commitment to uncovering the real person and making the story engaging, irritating through his constant hyperbole and on occasion conclusions that include a massive leap of faith. But that aside, Mortimer has of course written a great book, which I heartily recommend to you actually. He doesn't back away from the less savoury events in Henry's life. Early in the book he lays out his philosophy that the job of the biographer is to dig into and understand the character of his subject and that historians should be less shy of doing the same, since to do so builds greater understanding of events. It's not all about blind, grand themes unaffected by individuals. I think Mortimer does this brilliantly. It's his gig. He brings Henry to life as a real individual. He does rather fall into the biographer's trap of being overly positive. So, you know when you get asked that classic interview question, what are your greatest weaknesses? And of course the answer is to present a strength as a weakness. So, for example, my greatest weakness is I just don't know when to stop working, I can't stop until a problem is solved, that sort of thing. Mortimer does that. Henry was so generous that he gave away too much money to his friends, rather than Henry was unable to control royal finances. Henry wanted so much to be a good king that he tried to please everyone, rather than Henry tended to be blown around by political fortunes. But overall, it's a really good book and best to start with if you're interested. So there we are. To set against this, the biographer of Henry V casually slags Henry IV in 1992 with the offhand dismissal that he was 
a man never strong enough morally, politically or physically to give a firm lead to his countrymen. Ouch. Burn. For my own judgment, well, you'll have to see. But from what we know to this stage of Henry's life, I would say that a positive view of Henry to a degree has to be true. We've already seen his absolute loyalty, his father. He's a model of chivalry, a good fighter, curious, adventurous and confident enough to leap into the unknown. As his travels have shown, he's charming and affable. Very unusually for a medieval king, there's evidence of his wit. The Byzantine emperor remarked on it. And actually a line on his deathbed shows it stayed with him to the end. When he was asked if he regretted the usurpation, he sardonically remarked that his sons wouldn't allow him to give it back now. Not a bad effort when you're about to croak. But he's also clearly got a brain on him. He's a reader and a thinker. He's pious beyond the needs of his day, though I haven't brought that out in the narrative so far. But I would also claim we can go way too far. His treatment of Richard, as far as I can see, is clearly dishonest. I've little doubt that he aimed to make himself king and was far from upfront with Richard, but I also think that was without doubt the best thing for him to do. And there's part of me also that thinks Richard would look up from his grave at the rest of Henry's reign and feel at least some sense of justice that this sprig of the gentry, who for thirty years had all the privileges of wealth and power with precious few of the disbenefits, had to struggle with the same realities of kingship that Richard had been forced to deal with since he was a little nipper. Henry was to find out that power wasn't as easy as it looked, and I suspect that's pretty much always the case. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. He was to get his first demonstration far earlier than he would have liked. Henry had been far more generous and merciful to Richard's nearest and dearest than many expected, and indeed maybe more than was advisable. Because now there was a group of nobles and powerful men who, hate it or loathe it, may still have their heads, but didn't have anything like the political influence they'd once had. So let me take you to the abbot's lodging at Westminster Abbey on the 17th of December, 1399, where eight men have gathered looking furtive. Five of them are counter-appellants, the men who'd been the spearhead of Richard's revenge in 1397, when Gloucester and the Arundels, Thomas and Richard, and Warwick had been brought low. We have Edward, Earl of Rutland, son of the Duke of York. John Holland, the Earl of Huntingdon, half-brother of Richard II, and a thug all his life. He was also the badly behaved uncle of another of the conspirators, Thomas Holland, Earl of Kent. Then there's the Earl of Salisbury, the most prominent of the Lollards, who had worked so hard for Richard II at the French court to nix Bolingbroke's plans. Lord Dispenser, the Earl of Gloucester, had wide holdings on the Welsh march, proving that his family could cause trouble in any generation. Now, there was also a man called Richard Maudlin and a squire who just happened to look a lot like Richard II, 
and then a fervent Richard II fan, a man called Thomas Blount, who would soon prove that some people can think of good one-liners, whatever pressure they're under. There was the Bishop of Carlisle, who had spoken out against Bolingbroke in his first Parliament, and Roger Walden, the man made Archbishop of Canterbury by Richard, to replace Thomas Arundel. Walden was the Archbishop who had been displaced by the return of Arundel. So the deeply religious and saintly man planned to see Thomas Arundel assassinated in a deeply religious and saintly kind of way, so that he, Roger, could have his job back and bring his brand of saintliness to his deserving flock because these men were plotting rebellion, and here was the plan. On Epiphany, 6th of January, Henry IV was holding a great tournament at Windsor. That tournament would go ahead, but it would be Maudlin presiding over it, not Henry. And Henry by that time would be dead, killed on the night of the 4th by the rebels. The rebels would assemble their forces at Kingston, to the southwest of London. Maudlin would act as Richard II until all the remaining and presumably pitifully small number of Henry IV's supporters were dead, and until the rebels could liberate the real Richard from Pontefract Castle where he lay, easy-peasy, pudding and pie. On the 4th of January, though, Edward, the Earl of Rotland, bottled it. After having supper with his dad, the Duke of York, the news seemed to get out, and Edward went and spilt the beans to Henry. The story is that he left a document of indenture lying about where his father found it. The indenture defined his role in the rebellion, swearing to take part and do a good job. As if. I mean, as if rebels would create such a document. As if they'd leave them lying around if they did. But whatever. It was Edward, in all likelihood, that spilt the beans to Henry. And after all, he was never punished for his role. Now, for all of you Ricardians out there, or Bolingbroke haters, you have to admit that Henry does a decent job indeed in responding to this crisis. Before you could say, I'm innocent, he took his sons and rode for London. Rose the mayor, and writs and criers appeared throughout the streets of London, asking for men to join the king to defeat the rebels. Meanwhile, the rebels had gathered 6,000 men in the field at Kingston. On the 5th, Henry rode out of London at the head of his army, as the Londoners flocked to join him. Richard was not popular in the capital, not popular at all. And ahead of Henry went his loyal captain, John Beaufort, the Earl of Zamorzad. Beaufort was the son of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford, legitimised by Richard II, and actually formerly a counter-appellant, but now determined to support the new king, as he would throughout his reign. Meanwhile, Edward, the Earl of Rutland, was earning his freedom. He rode into the rebel camp for all the world as though he was still their loyal friend. And he told them, the king's approaching. He's got this massive army. Lord, you should see it. It's a whopper. Never seen anything like it. Stretches from here to Reykjavik. Bravely, the rebels legged it to get more men. In Chester, for example, the heartland of Richard's support, there were men aplenty gathering to make up for their failure to stop Henry while he'd been in their neck of the woods last time. The plan was that John Holland would hold the bridge at Maidenhead, west of London, while this happened. But as Henry arrived on the evening of the 5th, Holland's courage deserted him, and he ran away. Meanwhile, the Earls of Kent and Salisbury were with Richard's little eleven-year-old Queen Isabella. 
and they told her they'd rescue her hubby with a hundred thousand men at their back. So they went westwards down the Thames to Wallingford, Abingdon, and then to Sirencester, trying to raise the townsfolk. And there in Sirencester, the earls and their supporters took up residence for the night, expecting in the morning to assemble their army of brave townsfolk and liberate Richard. Along with Kent and Salisbury, incidentally, was a man called John Ferrore. We last saw John Ferrore at the Tower of London as a guard, turning a blind eye to the fourteen-year-old Henry Bolingbroke and letting the lad escape and keep his life in the Peasants' Revolt. Unfortunately for Kent, Salisbury and Ferrore, the crowd that assembled in the dark at midnight outside their house were all for Henry, not for Richard. Desperately, they fought to get out and escape, but at three o'clock in the morning they begged for mercy and begged to be allowed to see the king. The townsfolk weren't having it. A fire had started in the town, they were worried. So while the common men, the likes of John Farrell, were shipped off to Oxford for the judgment of the king, Kent was beheaded. Thomas of Walsingham, the chronicler, lets his grim satisfaction seep out when he wrote of Salisbury. The Earl of Salisbury, who had been a supporter of Lollards all his life, a scorner of images, a despiser of the canons, and a scoffer of sacraments, ended his life without the sacrament of confession, it said. Everything had essentially turned to poo. John Holland had stayed in London, saw the way the wind was blowing, and tried to get a boat to escape the continent. Unfortunately, he hadn't seen how the real wind was blowing, because it blew him back to the Essex coast where he was captured and turned over to the Countess of Hereford. The Countess Joan of Hereford was a Fitzalan. Her brother was Richard Fitzalan, Richard of Arundel, who had been tried by Richard in that treason trial, with all the counter-appellants and all, in 1397, and horribly executed. Her daughter had been Mary Bohoon, wife of Henry IV. So she took Holland back to her place, Pleshy Castle. There she got a mob together and ordered his head to be separated from the rest of his body. When that was done, the head was hoisted on a spike outside Pleshy Castle as a warning to the wild, and with grim satisfaction, Joan returned to her breakfast. So much for the violent death of the violent John Holland, Earl of Huntingdon. In London, Maudlin was found and hanged. In Bristol, Dispenser also met his death at the hands of the townsfolk. In Oxford, Henry received the survivors of the Epiphany Rising as the revolt became known. One of those who faced the king was John Farrell. Henry recognised him, and recognised the man who'd saved his life all those years ago, and he returned the favour, granting him a pardon. Henry came out of the affair pretty well, decisive and determined, still prepared to be merciful, but to be firm as well. Six men were condemned subsequently to a traitor's death, here at the History of England, we know all about what that means. Dragged to the town on a hurdle, hanged, cut down before dead, cut open, entrails burning in front of horrified eyes, drawn, quartered, whatever. Amongst the baying, howling crowd of townsfolk, ever eager for the sight of blood and pain, Thomas Blount's entrails were being burned in front of his eyes. When the king's man, Thomas Erpingham, rather nastily mocked him and asked him if he wanted a drink. Blount declined, saying, No, for I do not know where I would put it. Nice one. Guts all over the floor, water all over the place. Get it? Henry had come to the throne looking to put things right, 
determined that the standards of openness, chivalry, right and justice would prevail as they had in days gone by, in the days of yore, when men were men and women were women and small furry creatures, etc., etc. The epiphany rising showed that life was going to be more difficult than that. On the one hand, the earls had badly miscalculated. Very few people wanted Richard II back. The memory was way too fresh. But on the other hand, Henry... Bloody dog. But on the other hand, Henry would now have realised that it wasn't going to be easy. Politics was a dirty business. He was a usurper with a wafer-thin legitimacy. And to survive, he was going to have to get his hands dirty. Which is what he does. We really don't know for sure what happens to Richard. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The official story by February the 14th, 1400, was that Richard had voluntarily decided to go without food and water and had therefore died at Pontefract Castle. One chronicler linked it to the failure of the Epiphany Rising. Another, though, was that he was put to death by being deprived of food and water, a rather different interpretation. And indeed others hedged their bets and say that it was both. However, the probable conclusion from all of this is that Henry ordered Richard killed. It's also very likely that he did this not at the height of the rising when outcomes might have been open to doubt, but afterwards in the cold light of day and the light of cold, hard reasoning. Henry had learnt the lesson. The business of being king was not a walk in the park. Henry ordered Richard's body to be brought down to London with its face uncovered. This has naffle to do with the respect for the dead and everything to do with showing the world that the old king was as dead as a doornail. It was displayed for two days at St Paul's, and for two hours on Cheapside, London's main market. Look, everyone, really is the king, he's completely dead, deceased, ceased to be, gone to meet his maker, shuffled off the mortal coil, in short, a dead parrot, and an ex-parrot, crucially. He was then conducted down to Westminster Abbey, a few masses were sung, and then sent off to be buried in the relative obscurity at King's Langley, northwest of London. Now really, he should have been buried at Westminster Abbey. There was, in fact, a tomb waiting for him there. But Henry knew it had become a focal point for rebellion or some nutty cult, so he shipped him off. So, 1400, feet under the table, first test as King passed. What will the future hold? Next time we'll see how the troubles and tribulations the trade of kinging rise around Henry's gilded ears and how he deals with it all. Incidentally, as a whim, I left the dog in there this week just to introduce you to the bane of my podcasting life and allow you to share my pain. Sorry for the obscenity. So I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Thanks for your comments, your reviews, for taking part, for the Facebook and all of that stuff. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>